Pray with me. Father in heaven, we find out the greatness of your loving heart by reflecting upon the word that you give to us. We pray that even now you would enable us to do that, Father. I pray that you would take away from us uh, distractions and that you would enable us to center in upon your word and in it that we would find out the greatness of your loving heart and that we would uh, be transformed by that and we'd live in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you, uh, please, to be seated. And turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, I want to read verses 10 through 18. Joshua in chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and Courageous. Now, last week we asked the question, what are we going to get out of our study, our consideration of this book in the Old Testament called Joshua? We recognize the fact that it's historical, that it's, a, it's an historical narrative. So we know that we're going to get some details about various events that took place in ancient Israel during the days of Joshua, after the death of Moses, and before the death of Joshua. So we know we'll get those details. But we said it's more than just historical narrative. We made note that in the Hebrew canon, the book of Joshua is placed in the section called the prophets, which means that this history is a history with a purpose. It's a history with a message. It's a history that preaches. And so as one author put it, when we come to Joshua, we need to ask this question. What is the writer of Joshua preaching about when he tells me this story? And we realize from uh, Paul's writing in Romans... So just a review for you. Paul's writing in Romans that he tells us that the Old Testament was given to us that we might have hope. He puts it like this. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now hope is the expectation that something good is going to come. 
We have all kinds of expectations about the future. Many of them may be quite realistic, and yet not all of them are hope. We may expect to fail, but I doubt that's your hope. We may expect to go bankrupt, but I doubt that's your hope. You see, hope is always looking for the good that's going to come. Hopeful people are people who are looking forward to good that's going to come. And the reason that hope is so important for us is that it enables us to persevere through difficult times. And what Joshua is going to, to, to try to encourage these people to do is to serve the Lord. You know the classic verse in Joshua. That is for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. That comes on the heels of a challenge to them to choose this day whom they will serve. So that's, that's where Joshua is headed. And so at the end of all this, he wants them to have sufficient hope in God that serving God really satisfies. That hope in God that he will fulfill all of his promises uh, so that good will ultimately come. So, so that's what he's aiming for. And so hope is very important. And we know the great struggle that many have with hope. Um, some do not live with much at all. And so the expectation, what we're expecting to get, the message, what he's preaching, we trust is hope, that we'll be able to hope in God in all of uh, the end of this. Because life isn't very hopeful. I mean, even Ecclesiastes, the preacher in the Old Testament, begins his message with these words, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. When you read that and you go, what's he talking about? Seeing that all life really is meaningless. And then and he walks through about what life looks like. He says, why do we toil so much generation after generation? Because it doesn't appear to do much good. Because generation after generation, nothing really seems to change. Oh, technology changes and all of that. But the human heart really doesn't. The stuff that affects human beings really like lying and cheating and hatred and injustice and all of that, that doesn't seem to change. It doesn't seem to change even with more pleasure that we can build into our lives. He says, he says, Ecclesiastes says, I sought after pleasure and I had all the wealth that one could use to seek after pleasure and all the time that one could have to seek after pleasure. And at the end, I realized that my pleasure simply covered up the real issues that existed Seeking pleasure didn't solve the problem. He said, oh, the, I had all the power that, that anyone can ever have, but that power really didn't solve the problems. They didn't go away. In fact, in human experience, power has been used rather than to help those troubled, but to exploit those troubled. And he said it wasn't wealth. He said we could accumulate wealth in great measure, but at the end of all that, we simply die and leave everything that we've accumulated to some fool. Sounds like he had a son-in-law. <laughs> that isn't true, because I have a son-in-law. He's wonderful. I am a son-in-law, and I'm wonderful. So, scratch that. <laughs> right? But you leave it to some fool who's not going to use it and enjoy it and, and appreciate it in the same way that you did. He says, no matter what we look at, really, nothing ever changes generation to generation to generation. And it doesn't take a really uh, 
great historian to look back in time and see that today, with all that we have, we're still struggling with the same stuff. We're still struggling with injustice. We're still struggling with war. We're still struggling with disease. We're still struggling with death. We're still struggling in the context of relationships. All of those things, just like always. And so Ecclesiastes is saying, life is hopeless. And then he says, except when you trust in God. Because hope is in him. He is the one who brings good and meaning and purpose in the context of life. And see, that's what we're after here. What we're after at the end of Joshua is, is hope. We could put it this way. When we're looking at the book of Joshua, we could say that the purpose for which it was written, that is, that's the reason why God had it written. That's the reason why the author sat down and wrote this. He had a purpose in mind. I want to accomplish this through this, through this book. The purpose for which Joshua was written is to bring us hope, to enable us to continue to follow after God, to enable us to continue to serve him. That's the purpose for which he wrote it. The end result, he wants us believing. He wants us following God. He wants us serving God, worshiping him. Now, his theme, which is the idea that he presents to us to enable us to serve God and to have hope, the theme is to show us how faithful God is. Saying, at the end result, I want you to hope in God. The end result, I want you to serve him. The end result, I want your life to be consumed by God. Well, how is he going to get us there? The way that he's going to get us there is saying, let me show you how faithful God is. So that the end result, you'll say, why would I serve another? Why would I worship any other? Why would I have my life consumed by any other than God? All right? So his purpose is to get us to serve, to worship, to follow God. Is that, therefore, the theme of Joshua is the faithfulness of God. We saw that a bit last week. We saw that just as we entered into this, he was telling us about, in a sense, the faithfulness of God. And he said, God is with you, Joshua. Therefore, everything that God has promised will come to pass. So be strong and courageous. God is with you. And we think about that in the context of our own lives. God is with us. The distinguishing feature of the people of God in every generation is God is with them. Very special to us, as Jesus said, that the Holy Spirit will be in us. Therefore, bringing the very presence of God as up close and personal as we could possibly imagine the Spirit of God with us. I challenge, I, I ask you, to look for God this week. To look for God in the presence of your own life. I hope you did that. I hope you continue to do that. Just, just look for him as he exists, as he is in your own life. Where does he show up? Where do you find him? And, and not just in the dramatic. You know, I prayed the light would turn green and it did. I don't know what to call that. But in the ordinary, the very fact you continue to walk with him. The very fact that you opened your Bible to read. The very fact that you began to pray. The very fact that when trouble came, you cried out to him. The very fact that when you sinned, you asked for forgiveness. The very fact that you're concerned about the relationship you're in. All of that is God's stuff. In the context of your life, it's his very presence in you. 
And then he told Joshua that if you meditate and obey my word, you will have success. And that's true for us as well. Because God is faithful. And the success that he's talking about, he's saying, listen, the success is this. That my word will make you wise. As you meditate upon it, as you obey it. You will, as Paul writes to the people in Romans, in, in Rome, that you will be able to test and you'll be able to verify, if you will, the will of God, His pure, perfect will. That's wisdom. And if you follow after that wisdom, then you'll have success. Now, no one else may recognize it as being successful because we know that to follow Christ and lose our lives is success. We know to follow Christ, even if it means we lose our jobs, our friends, our status, and all of that, we know that's success. That's following after the wisdom of God. And he says, if you do that, if you meditate upon my word, I'll be faithful. If you obey my word, I'll be faithful. That you'll have success in your life. So worship him, serve him, follow him. Now today we come across the promise in the book of Joshua. And uh, it's in the middle, it's in verse 11. First, he says, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you're to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And then he calls out these three tribes, and I'll tell you why he does that in a minute. But in the middle of verse, but in verse 13, he says, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And then in verse 15, he talks about all the other tribes. And he says, Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving uh, to them. God had promised to the Israelites land. I mean, he promised it to Abraham way back uh, when they first met. For instance, you don't need to turn to this. You can if you're quick. Uh, but in Genesis, uh, in chapter 12 and verse 7, in the midst of God coming to Abraham in the very first meeting, he says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. And then in chapter 15, as God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he talks to him about, uh, about his life and all the descendants that he is going to have. Um, Abraham asks God, he said, God says to Abraham, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out, for, out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he that is Abraham said, to, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then God makes a covenant with him. And then he tells him this, on that day that the Lord your God made a covenant with you, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, uh, to the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, uh, the Kenizzites, and a whole bunch of Zites there. But he says, I'm going to give you this particular piece of land. It's huge. We remember what happened. That he also said to Abraham, that your people are going to be enslaved for a while before they get their, this land. And we, we know that happened. We know they went into slavery in Egypt. We know Moses went and got them. We know as they came out, they sinned and therefore were unfaithful and weren't allowed to go into the land. And we know that Moses himself wasn't allowed to go into the land either. But now Moses is dead, and so they're getting prepared to go into the land. 
what God has promised, he's now going to fulfill uh, in them. Now, the reason that he calls together the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh is this, just a little fill-in historically so you understand the context. Way back in the days of Moses, as they were thinking about entering the land and what that would look like, the uh, Israelites were on the east side, as they are right now, on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, got a picture of the Jordan River? They were on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, and they needed to go across the Jordan to the west side of the Jordan River where their land was. But the Reubenites and the Gadites looked around at the land on the east side and said, this would be great for us. Uh, we have livestock, we have sheep, we have cattle. This would be a great place for us. So can we have this land? And Moses got really angry with him. Because of, bah, how dare you say that? Because if you take this land, then we've, which we've already conquered, then you're going to leave it up to all your brothers to go across the Jordan into that land, and they'll have to fight their own battles, and you'll be back here just having a good time. How dare you? How discouraging that would be to them to think that you're going to stay back here and they've got to go in there and fight. In fact, this sounds a lot like what happened when I sent out the spy, when we sent out the spies initially and they came back and said, we don't want to go into that land because the giants are there and it's going to be too big. So I think the Reubenites and the Gadites regrouped. They went to Moses and said, how about this? <clears throat> how about if you give us this land, we'll build homes and we'll let our wives and children be there. But the men of valor, the army, we will go with, the other, with our brothers, with the other tribes across the Jordan, and we'll, we'll actually lead them into battle. And we won't come back home until they receive their land, until they get their rest. We won't rest until they rest. Moses said, okay, but if you're deceiving me, your sin will find you out. That's all he had to say because by that time, things like the earth had opened up and swallowed people and so forth. So I think they got this drift. <clears throat> so now as they're preparing to enter into the land, everybody's going to go. But it's important for Joshua to get the Reubenites, the Gadites, and Joseph's uh, one son Manasseh and his tribe uh, got along with that as well. And so he calls them together and he gives them the same word that Moses had given them before. He's holding to the law just like he's supposed to and so he'll have success. And so to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, he said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land, your wives, the little ones, your livestock, uh, shall remain in the land that Moses gave to you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, giving, giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, uh, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Now, that's the promise that Joshua made under God to the people. The land will be yours. And it was. Turn to J Joshua chapter 11 and verse 23. We read this. So Joshua took the land, the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. 
And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Promised them rest. He promised them the possession of the land. By chapter 11, they had it. And then chapter 21 and verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that, the Mo- that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. So you can you catch the drift of this one who wrote this book of Joshua. You can catch Joshua's drift. He's saying there's a promise of God. You're going to get the land. And when you get the land, you'll have rest for all your, from all your enemies. They won't threaten you anymore. This will be yours. You'll be secure there. That's just the way it will be. And then by chapter 11, he says, Whoop, we did it. And then chapter 12 will come as just a summary of all the kings and territories that they conquered. Beginning in chapter 13 to chapter 21 is the allocation of the land. Now that they have it, they split it up. And at the end of all that then, all that's confirmed because he goes to the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and he says, go home. You did it. They have rest. Now you get rest. So all of the promises are fulfilled. And so Joshua at the very end of that, it says, why wouldn't you serve God? Why wouldn't you serve the one who makes promises like this to give you land and to give you rest from all of your enemies and make you prosperous? Why wouldn't you serve him? So you see the purpose, serve him, the theme, the faithfulness of God to all of his promises. Now this promise of rest is very, very important. It's way bigger than just this group of Israelites having land and having rest. I mean, it doesn't take a great Bible scholar to think back and ask the question, when is the first time in the Bible that the word rest is mentioned? Right? Genesis chapter 2. You remember, Genesis starts out with this great creation song. It's just a wonderful song of praise about God having created everything. And we, they sing it through and has this great stanza in the evening and the morning with the first day and the second day and the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day. And then we come to Genesis and, 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 and chapter 2 because at the end of the sixth day, God looks at all of this and says it's really good. Genesis 2 verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, finished his work that he had done, 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so this seventh day doesn't have an evening and a morning. It just seems to want to go on. We're just sort of left hanging there. We keep waiting for this little refrain and it doesn't happen. Because you get this sense that this rest of God is to be perpetual. That now he's created everything. He doesn't need to create anymore. And now he sits enthroned over all his creation. And it isn't that in his rest God is inactive. You remember that there was a day in the life of Jesus where he healed a guy on the Sabbath. And they came to him and Jesus said, uh, I am working and my father is now working. And they got all upset about that. But that tells us that God isn't inactive in his rest, but he's active ruling and reigning over his creation. He's not creating, he's rested from that, but he's ruling and reigning, he's enthroned over all of his creation. Uh, that's now what he's doing, but, but God is resting. And you get the sense that Adam and Eve were to live in the rest of God. They were to live in that seventh day. I always find it interesting that they were created on the sixth day. Uh, they woke up on the seventh. And it was a day off. You know? Uh, that's cool. You know? It's sort of like, here you are. Go tend the garden, but not today. And so you get the sense that they were to realize in the very first day after they were created, that very first moment afterwards, that they were to live under the sovereignty of God. He was enthroned. He would provide. He was their God. And now they were just to live. And while their days would have mornings and evenings of the sun and moon and all of that, still that they were to rest in God's provision. And it wouldn't take much for them to recognize God's provision. Just look around. Here it is. Here's the garden. Here's everything you could possibly need. Rest in this provision of God. But we know they sinned. And with sin came unrest. Right? With sin came unrest. And we see this unrest after Adam and Eve sins because they, they, they run. And they cover themselves. They hide. There's no rest in God at that point in time in their lives. They're running and hiding. God comes to them. And there's unrest then that takes place in, in everything. In creation it appears. The land has unrest at that point. Uh, there's unrest between Adam and Eve and amongst people. There's unrest between people and this serpent. There's hostility that comes between them. So the, the whole world, it seems, moves from a place of rest to a place of, of unrest. But God, in his wonderful kindness and grace, makes a promise that one's going to come. And you get the sense that rest is going to be restored. And so you see this build back up. He comes to Abraham and he makes promise of land and, and descendants and people and all of that. And they're going to have rest in that land ultimately. They're enslaved so there's no rest. But then they come out in the wilderness and they spy the land but they don't believe God so there's no rest. And then Joshua comes after the death of Moses and says, okay, trust God. Believe him finally. And they do. And what do they receive? They receive this this rest that comes, rest from their enemies, rest because now they're in the land of God, rest because it's a land that will provide them with all that they, all that they need. But we realize that even then this, 
This rest is more. This will be easy for you. Turn to Hebrews in chapter 4. Your Bibles should still be able to open there quickly. Well, let me start in chapter 3 and just cover what I've just said. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as it is in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You remember Moses gave to the people of Mount Sinai a sign of this rest. And it was a Sabbath day. So I want you to take this Sabbath day. God has made it holy. And I want you to do no work on that day. I want you to rest. Every seventh day will be a commemoration of the fact that we live under God's sovereignty. That we live as, as those who live under the care of God. So I want you to take that day and commemorate it like that. It shows you're trusting in Him. It shows you rely upon Him. He shows that, you, that He is your God. And then He's going to give you land and you'll be able to live in rest all the time but this seventh day will be holy and you'll live in his rest so Joshua takes them into the land but we realize that that wasn't the final provision of rest notice how the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 4 and verse 6 he says since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience again he appoints a certain day today saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore let us, or let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's this all about? Well, what it's all about is, as we read through the Old Testament, what we always see is shadows of a reality that's to come. See, one of the great things about reading the Old Testament is that it's, it's kind of like um, the action part, physically, of what goes on spiritually in life. And so as we read about all these wars between God's people and the enemies of God, what we'll recognize is that there's not only those kinds of physical battles going on, but there's spiritual battles going on all the time. And this will give us a visual of what we can't see spiritually. And we also realized, as we went through the book of Hebrews, that there's all kinds of shadows of things that are to come. There are priests, and Jesus will be that high priest. There are sacrifices, and Jesus will be that sacrifice. There's temples, will be the very temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we see how that takes place all the time. And now we see there's a rest that shows up in the Old Testament, but it's going to point to a deeper 
rest that Jesus will fulfill. And that, especially in the book of Joshua, shouldn't surprise us. Because the name Jesus is the New Testament Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name for Joshua. If the New Testament had been written in Hebrew, we would be calling him Joshua or Joshua. And so we see that the Old Testament Joshua, the name means God saves, God's salvation. The Old Testament Joshua is a picture for us of the New Testament Jesus, the Messiah. And as Joshua leads the people into rest by conquering all of God's enemies, then Jesus leads his people into their rest by conquering all of their enemies. That's why it should be no surprise to anyone that in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. I've already read this to you once today. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, sure. That was the job of Joshua, to bring the people into rest. The new Joshua comes, and so what's he going to promise? Rest. Is it a piece of land uh, where there are, are, is rest from their enemies? Ultimately, yes. It's called the new earth. But this provision that even saying now, because he's inviting those people to it in that moment in time, that they'll receive a sense of rest now, it's a rest for your souls. He says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yokes in the days of Jesus were very common. They were used, put on the shoulders of animals, even on the shoulders of people, in order to make a load lighter. But they also had the figurative meaning that if one is yoked to something, you can't get away from it. You're tied to it. That's your burden. Burden might be light, burden might be heavy, but you're still burdened by it. And he says to us, to them, to us, are you burdened? Is the weight too great? Are you tied to something that you can't carry? He says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll put my yoke upon you. Now you can say, well, that's going to make the load lighter. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to attach you to me. I'm going to take off the other yoke. You're attached to that burden. Now I'm going to put my yoke on you. You're going to be attached to me, to my stuff. You were attached to this stuff. Now you're going to be attached to my stuff. The stuff that you were attached to before was the stuff of death. The stuff that you were attached to before is the stuff of sin. That's what was burdening you down. That's why there was no rest for your souls. Because deep down, in the very recesses of your heart and your mind, you knew God existed. And you knew that God was holy. And you knew that you had sinned against Him. In the midst of all of that, there is a burden and a hopelessness that comes upon you in the context of life. And not only that, you look out in the world and you realize how huge it is and how big it is and how there's so many things out there that are going to destroy you. They're not simply out to destroy you. 
they will at least destroy your body. You will die of something. And it's out there. <laughs> and it's going to get you. I don't mean to be flippant about it, but it's just true, isn't it? When we think about this logically, it's out there. And it's going to get us. And when a person begins to think about that, and you realize there is no escape from that, and you don't know when it's coming. So there's uncertainty and certainty. Uncertainty, you don't know when. Certainty, you know it is going to take place. And so why live the burden of all that? We can think in the context of our own day of the, the burden of the uncertainty of the market, for instance. What's going to happen to all of the stuff we've accumulated? We could lose it, couldn't we? Others have. Read history. We know that's the case. We don't know. There's uncertainty in the context of life. It's uncertainty about what's going to happen when you walk down a street at night. There's uncertainty about when you get on your computer, is someone going to steal your identity? I'm sure someone has stolen my identity and said, I could do better. <laughs> I could get somebody better than this, so I'm pretty safe, I think, really, all things considered. But that exists, those threats. Think of all the threats that exist just personally and then nationally and, and politically and all those kinds of things. We could list them, but, but we needn't. We know the truth of that. If you live in the reality of life, Jesus said there is a burden. And there's a burden because your soul is burdened. There's no rest because there's no hope. So he says, come here. Come to me. Let me detach that yoke and let me attach my yoke. Let me detach you from the stuff of sin and guilt and condemnation and death. And let me attach you to forgiveness, pardon, acceptance from God and life. And he says, if you let me do that, if I can do that in your life, then you'll be free. You'll have rest for your souls. And you'll say, I'm going to die. But yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because I'm yoked to Jesus. He's been there, done that, conquered it. Right? You're going to meet God. I can rest. Why? Because I'm yoked to Jesus. He's been there, done that on my behalf. I'm going to face uncertainty, but I'm yoked to the one who's sovereign over all things who loves me, who's wise. You can find rest, he says, for your souls. That's the depth of what Joshua is speaking to us about. Yeah, rest from your enemies. Jesus conquers them all and invites us to be yoked to him. There's one more thing very quickly. You remember the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They weren't able to receive their rest until everybody else got theirs. That's a great word for us. Because, you see, you might be quite comfortable in the context of your life. Your house might be built. Your livestock may be doing well. But there are others of us that are trying to get across. And he's saying, I know how comfy it is, but you can't.
experience the fullness of rest when your brother or sister is in unrest. So go help them. Go fight with them. Go encourage them. Go teach them. Go give them what they need. Because you see, that's this nature of the togetherness, the groupness of who we are. There's all kinds of things that tell us that, that, we're, that we're together as a group in the context of the body of Christ. Uh, we're a body. We're a spiritual house, Peter says to us. We're living stones built one upon another. That's who we are. We're not independent. And so in the midst of our enjoyment of rest, we need to go to others and invite them to enter. We need to go to others and help them so that we encourage them. So if you're a happy person, it means that you've got encouragement to spare. So go share it with a discouraged one. If you read the scripture and it fills you, then go fill another with that which you've been filled. If your life is such that your children are raised, go help someone raise theirs. If your life is such where you see another in need, and you have, give to them. I don't think this is spiritualizing some historical event. It's just true in the life of who we are. And so sometimes, individually, we're not experiencing the rest that we think we should, the peace that we think we should. Why? Because there are others among us who are in unrest. And God is saying, now go to them. And I'll tell you this, and I have to tell myself this every day, that I experience rest when I'm living in the unrest of a brother or sister. Because in the midst of that, God comes and conquers. And there's rest for our souls. Uh, Joshua, Jesus, St. God has promised rest. The way that we enter that rest is through faith. We trust in Jesus, that he's done it. We live in that. And now he says, serve him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that this word would ring in our minds and in our hearts. That we'd realize in Jesus there is rest for our souls. Well, we know sometimes that's easier said than experienced. We know there are many amongst us that experience times of unrest. We all do. I pray that we would be believers, that we would trust. And I pray that we would extend ourselves to one another so that we would corporately together find rest, anticipating that day, that day that will come, when Jesus will come, and there'll be rest experienced, fulfilled, complete for us all. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. <clears throat> I remind you that the response <clears throat> to 
the benediction is this. Jesus has brought us rest. Hallelujah. number of things to just note. One, it comes from Jesus. Two, it's not just a me thing. It's an us thing. And three, it's awesome. So hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Jesus has brought us rest. Hallelujah.